Hello, my dearest peace lovers and peacemakers. This is Sarah Jamshidi. Welcome to Peace Mindedly, a podcast we feature the best of the best of peaceful bridge makers. Before I move forward with the program, I have a very short promo for you to play. Hello, I have a favor to ask you. Could you please consider helping us out financially? We are an independent news outlet. We have never been associated with any organizations or groups. Your contributions help us to stay sustainable. Please go to goldtoon.com and pledge your contributions. Please think about hundreds and two hundreds and five hundreds when you pledge. We cannot exempt your donation from tax, but we thank you very, very much. Merci beaucoup. Dankeschön. Çok teşekkürler. Şükran. Xeyli mamnun. Now back to our program. Today is an important day, I believe, and I am so delighted to discuss today's show with you. Something important is happening, very important. I believe as we release uh, this video and audio production, we are going to be on day four of the United Nations Climate Change Conference, also known as COP26. COP stands for Conference of Parties. It is happening in Glasgow, Scotland, United Kingdom, and world leaders and government bodies are going to talk about perhaps resubmit to the Paris Agreement or Paris Accord. Paris Accord is to, to pledge nationally determined contributions to limit their government, the government bodies, uh, greenhouse emission greenhouse emission. More than 200,000 people are, ex are expected to attend the meetings, the talks, and they include representatives, scientists, and policy experts, and experts on climate change. And for our show, I am so delighted that we have our own expert who is going to tell us what's happening and why we really need to care about climate change and human-made, man-made, woman-made, human-made disaster that we are dealing with. And I'm sure that I'm sure that almost all of us are dealing with climate change anywhere we live. Just a few uh, days ago, we had a blast, like a big storm in Seattle, very rainy. We didn't have power for a few hours, more than 20, 23 hours. And then people around the world are affected by by the climate change disaster. Our guest will explain us how to slow down or perhaps reverse the climate change disaster. Kate Gardner is the author of Planting a Seed, Three Simple Steps to Sustainable Living. Kate is an expert and consultant in corporate sustainability. With her entrepreneurial spirit, she has combined more than 25 years of experience consulting and advising companies. She holds a Master of Science in Sustainable Management from the University of Wisconsin and an MBA from Wharton School. Cool. I am bringing Kate to the screen. Hello, Kate. Hi, Sarah. How are you? Thank you for having me. Absolutely. It's a pleasure and honor to have you and to host you on Peace Mindedly. Kate serves on the board of Accelerate Fund, a business accelerator and fund for women business owners. Okay, Kate, I mean, I am super excited. I mean, my sister always tells me, why don't you show the book? This is the book, Planting a Seed. <laughs> 
<laughs> Three simple steps to sustainable living. I read the book and I just marked and I, I, I enjoyed it quite a lot. There are lots of tips about, okay, what to do and how to conduct as an individual, how to conduct yourself towards more sustainable living. So if you give with, uh, would give us a list of five things that we do in, within our own life, to at least to be considered for a sustainable living, what would be those, um, what would, what would be the list? Yeah, good question. Um, so I always think of it in like corporate sustainability terms and then apply it to individuals. So everyone's heard of taking their personal carbon footprint and there's tons of calculators online to do that. But sometimes it, again, it just feels like, you know, how, how do we meaningfully make change there? Um, so I, what I do in my book is I say, hey, listen, these are the seven to eight different categories that you need to think about that you have under your control to, to pull those sustainability levers. Uh, and so there's... There's eight, right? Let me just name them. Transportation, energy, food, water, home, and property. Material goods, that's a huge one, like what we consume, and then our waste streams. If you look at those eight, I want you then to focus in on three. Transportation, energy, and food. Because those, those activities within those three categories make up anywhere between 70 to 80% of all our personal emissions that go up into the atmosphere. So they're important to uh, what I call is the great levers of change that we can um, control in our lives. So to answer your question, I would say the first one around transportation is try to lease or buy an electric vehicle. And if that is not affordable, then an e-bike, an e-scooter, uh, an e-moped, or just abandon all of those technologies if you're urban and walk and bike and use public transportation, right? So that's a really great way of just avoiding emissions into the atmosphere. Why, why transportation is in the uh, top of the list? Why is it? Because we have, at least in um, developed countries, like in the United States, um, we have basically decided that we are we were going to uh, move people around using fossil fuels, using a combustion engine vehicle, and so that is about seventy percent of all transport uh, all emissions that go up into the atmosphere come from our personal automobiles. So it's just a big lever. Wow. <laughs> Yay. The, the second one, if I wanted to, if you asked for five. So the second one is it, it, as much as possible, try to transition yourself away from fossil fuel use to renewables, right? So <laughs> get yourself off natural gas and coal and oil, all of that, and move towards any kind of renewables that is available and found in your region. Right here in the Pacific Northwest, we have a lot of hydropower, a lot of water power. Um, but, you know, in France, for instance, they, they use a lot, they, they rely a lot on nuclear power. Um, so it's just dependent on where you, you reside. The third, uh, I think, sustainability tip is to, is in the food category, 
uh, is to transition yourself to a vegetarian plant-based diet. Now, 3 billion people on this planet rely on fish for their protein. And protein is really important for our health and um, well-being and productivity, right? So not everyone can eat a plant-based diet. And I would say the people that really love and need fish because they're close to that source, and that's really their only um, protein source, is to consider um, sustainably caught fish. Um, so that's the, the food area. And then there's two- What does that mean of the cut in a sustainable manner? Yeah, it's a hard. <laughs> I with, with my, you know, it, my my accent is not. I'm not native speaker, although <laughs> no. I speak other another three languages. But you're gonna pardon me. So what no, is I cut? Yeah, it's it's working with local farmers and 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 buying from local um, fisheries and um, fishermen and women that. Um, basically source not in an industrialized way. So they're not these big nets. These are not these huge fish um, boats that go out and just haul in tons of fish, right? They are being, they're ensuring that they are not um, depleting the stock of, of certain types of fish. There's also a lot of opportunity for um, sustainable protein in river systems, right? Not, not everything has to come from the ocean because we've depleted the ocean um, dramatically of fish. Mm-hmm. So that, and they're, and they're making sure that they're just not depleting the, the stock. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all are very good points. So I have two questions. The first question is, so let's say I want to do um, all of this, but I, I, I can do only three. Can you give me very specific three things that I can do to adhere to your idea of sustainable, sustainable living? Yeah, I mean, again, it is uh, get yourself off of fossil fuels as much as possible. So electrifying, heating your um, home, your home dwelling and your water systems, Um, not using a combustion engine car. Uh, And um, I mean, I I do think there's so many opportunities around food. I mean, so I only do do three. Uh, I was going to say the other thing that you wanted to talk a little bit about is this consumptive, you know, being a consumer and the way that we consume today is just totally unsustainable. And it is a, it is a, a, a social construct that really came into existence after World War II, right? Um, and so we have to rethink that and move away from it. We're just consuming too much all the yeah. time. World War II, you just mentioned World War II. So I am from Iran. I lived through revolution and war. And um, and because of that, we, uh, we had to within our household and in a larger society even now, I mean, we, we were not allowed to waste food not allowed. <laughs> and then here in the US, um, it's American sort of, I thought that, oh, it's cool and American to just throw this out and throw that out. And now I'm thinking, no, it's not cool. And it's not uh, American it doesn't matter. It's unethical. And I cannot do that. So I honestly try to not waste food. But could you please talk about how about you do you waste food? 
<laughs> do not waste food. I mean, I, what do you do? We have this weird thing in America where I feel like if people have made it, then it's their right to consume and to throw away things that they don't need and it makes them feel good about themselves. Uh, no, Americans in the United States, they we waste on average $1,500 worth of food annually. That's a lot for uh, for you know, many households. The other thing that I don't understand is people have decided, you know, just randomly that they'll cook something and they decide that they, the leftovers are not worthy to be eaten. You know, like, hey, I don't like leftovers. But leftovers, it's still food. And if you don't eat it, it's waste. And 20 to 30% of household waste is food waste. Mm-hmm. There's plenty of people that are going hungry all across the globe. I do not understand that. So in so your in your household, how do you not waste food? What do you do? Uh, you know, so I'm a, I'm a big cook. Um, I, and of course, in the pandemic, everyone's cooking more at home. Uh, but I find that the food is better that I make um, and I prefer it and I can also control it. So one of the things that, and I've lived five years, I've I've lived many times in Europe, um, but I lived five years recently in Europe and typically what people do there because the refrigerators are smaller and the ovens are tinier and the kitchens are, you know, really utilitarian for the most part because of space constraints, um, you shop every day. You literally shop for the food that you need to eat that night, right? And so what I tend to do now is I shop more often, more frequently, and I only shop for what I need for that day and maybe one or two days after that. And I never buy in bulk. I, I just don't. I buy fresh. I am a member of a CSA, a consumer a community supported agriculture. So I support my local farmers and they, they, they grow what's in season, uh, what they can grow here in the state of Oregon. And they, they um, drop off a box and I cook what they drop off and it lasts me for two weeks. So Um, Costco doesn't like you. I mean, I've, I've literally never been in a Costco before <laughs> or a Sam's Club. I just, I'm not a big believer in bulk because I think that it also forces people to overconsume and throw away. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. But wouldn't you think that this is a little bit elite? Uh, yes. <laughs> I mean, uh, yes, Sarah, thank you. I mean, yes, I think that I am a white privileged woman. I, I do. I do. Mm-hmm. Um, I can do that. Um, and I can pay more for organic and sustainable and, um, you know, really fresh food. But I do think that we have to get back to that mentality of we have to buy local and eat what's local. We have to eat what's seasonal. And there's a lot of urban, I live in an urban environment, there's a lot of community gardens that are being built up, especially here in Portland, but in a lot of um, urban cities now, uh, where people are sharing their their wealth, their garden wealth, because as you may know, and I have done this, and I still do this, I, um, I do have my own garden, and I plant 
um, tomatoes and zucchinis, right? And my mother-in-law says um, she's she lives in Minneapolis, um, Minnesota. She says in the summertime, you literally you got to watch out because if you park your car to go grocery shopping, you might find a zucchini or two just sitting on your in your chair of your you know your car, and that's because. You can't eat everything that is produced. It's really bountiful. So I like the idea of being able to share your your garden wealth. Mm -hmm. Your garden wealth. Very good. So in the United States, this is I think this is a elite nation. And then we consume a lot. We spend a lot. We buy a lot. And just a lot is the way of life here. In the United States, it's not the way of life in the Middle East that I usually travel or in Europe. But here's the thing. Wouldn't you believe that uh, what you're advocating or perhaps I am geared towards is against capitalism, against consuming and consumption? So wouldn't you make yourself an enemy of capitalism? Mm, I'm trying to work with the leaders in this capitalist society to transform the system that we have created to something better. Um, so I do not believe in continuous growth. I do not believe in just-in-time manufacturing. Uh, I know that it is an efficiency construct, but it is producing tons of waste and um, depleting our natural resources faster than they can be replenished. Uh, so I, when I when I work with my corporate clients, even though I might not say it, although I do tend to say it at the end of our engagement, I'm trying to get them to apply uh, a lens of stakeholder capitalism to how they, they operate and manufacture products. So this idea of producing less and servicing your products that already exist, and then also thinking about how you design products so that you can disassemble them, sort them where they need to go, and then keep them into the, the value chain system um, so that we don't keep on going back and sourcing virgin. But I, I, I talk a lot in my book about we have to rethink um, being consumers. I think that when you, when I, I'll just take my, my, my life, my example. I just grew up in a middle-class family and um, it was pretty much, I was allowed to get what I needed. Uh, sometimes I got what I wanted. I actually, you know, that was, you know, but we, 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 we were brought up in a system of, oh, it's there and it's really close and we don't need to wait that long for it. And so this is just the system of how we consume. And I think that we need to go back and have a little bit of a history lesson of how this came to be, the social and cultural construct of consumerism, mm -hmm. so that we can change it. Yes, we can change it. We can change it. So in the book, there are lots of tips about what individuals can do. Uh, we are going to go through some of those examples. My favorite one is uh, flushing and shower and all of those. But would you think that government is a solution or problem towards this issue? Right. I think this is a double-sided coin. <laughs> so yes and no. And so the yes answer is yes, we need governments to regulate bad behavior and pollutive practices of industry. 
And there is real success when government jumps in and says, no, we have to take care of biodiversity loss, right? The, and I'm going to, again, reference the United States, but you know, um, the Endangered Species Act, hey, we're using too many chemicals and we're polluting our water systems. Okay, we're going to have a Clean Water Act. We're going to have a Clean Air Act. These have been highly successful in scaling back pollution practices, right? Um, so, and, and, and ensuring that at least the animals that are on that endangered species list are protected. And it, there's been some real success. So I think, yes, government needs to be involved and it needs to regulate bad actors and bad behavior. But they can also be a problem. And that goes back to you know, your initial conversation around introducing the Paris Climate Accord and um, you know COP26 is it's starting on October 31st, convening all of these nations and saying, hey, what are you doing around limiting global warming? It's the, in America, it is when they make climate change um, po political, right? Climate change is not political. Um, it's when there's lack of political will, which there is right now. There is um, deadlock um, when everything becomes partisan politics. Um, I talk about mis and disinformation campaigns. I mean, you get that in some countries around the world, right? But we're starting to apply that as a political tactic here in the United States. And it's not serving humanity or the non-human world very well. So that's when government can become a hindrance mm. to systems change. Yes, talking about government, I'm going to come back in a few minutes uh, after the short break. Stay put, please. You are watching To Peace Mindedly, a podcast featuring peaceful bridge makers. We are talking about climate change and human-made, man-made, woman-made climate disaster. Something important is happening in Glasgow, Scotland, in United Kingdom. It's not in, in the United Kingdom, but Scotland slash uh, United Kingdoms. And that is is the COP26 conference of parties and it's a UN climate change conference. Many governments and many government parties and delegates uh, are gathered to talk about what to do with the global warming, with the climate change and how to control the footprint that we are living, uh, how to deal with it and uh, how to really preserve and try to reverse the conduct to serve future. So here, here's the deal. If you love your children, if you have a children and love your children, I think the same with me, we are obliged to think about this matter really, really seriously, because what's happening outside is an important matter, and not only government, but also individuals need to take charge to reverse or to slow down reverse. I really would love to think about reverse. I really do not want to think about slowing down, but reverse uh, what has been happening in the environment, and especially conducts by industrial nations. And for that, we have a perfect guest to talk with us about, about this sustainable living. Kate Gardner is the author of Planting a Seed, Three Simple Steps to Sustainable Living. So in the book, there are 
tons, I mean, so many tips, so many ideas uh, what to do. For instance, one of the strategies Kate talks about is renew clothing. Some of the companies like Island Fisher have conducted this idea of uh, purchasing their clothes from uh, their customers and uh, making them new or close to new and resell them. We do have companies who are using the used clothes and refurbishing. And then there is a food system. Just think about mindfully of how to not waste food as much as we can and and all of those. So these are important issues. The world is talking about it and we are talking about it and we need to be very diligent about all of those matters if we love our children. Kate is an expert and consultant in corporate sustainability. She holds a Master of Science in Sustainable Management from the University of Wisconsin. Her recent planting a seed uh, is out in paperback just a few days ago. It uh, came back October 19. She truly believes that uh, we need we need to hold ourselves together and be mindful about how we consume because we, we, we need to save our planet for future generation. Okay, Kate, I would love to know what happened, why you decided to write the book. <sighs> really good question, Sarah. Um, I came back from living in Europe in the summer, the end of August of 2016, right before we had a national election. And to my chagrin, it didn't go the way that I thought it was going to go. And I'm sitting in my home country with a U.S. president and an administration that doesn't believe in climate change, thinks it's a hoax, and starts to, over the course of four years, roll back uh, regulations, environmental regulations, to, to the detriment of humanity and, and all you know living organisms on this planet. Uh, and so that was a wake up call for me. I saw the level of concern that individuals had in Europe, and it was the same here uh, with Americans, that they were still waiting to be told what to do by their federal government or their state governments, right? And unfortunately, we have 50 state governments. Some of them are very progressive and understand the existential threat of climate change, <laughs> to their citizens. Do you know which one, of them, which one of them are progressive? Yeah. Uh, well, New York and New Jersey and um, Minnesota, Washington State, Oregon, California. You know, you have a lot on the East and West Coast and you have a, a smattering in the middle. But here's the thing. So some of them have climate action plans and some of them are like, nope, climate change doesn't exist. We're doing nothing about it. And so we, in the United States, because of our federal system, our federalist system of government, we really do need to have strong regulation and leadership around the climate crisis at the federal climate crisis at the federal level. And that just was lacking. So uh, what I, I wrote the book because the other thing that I knew and I had been hearing by, from people was, hey, listen, sustainability, what is that? Like, that's a huge, broad category. How does it apply to me? I can't save the glaciers myself. I can't save the polar bears. They're too far away. It's happening too far away. How do I make it practical? 
So that was the main reason. The second one is I wanted everyone to realize that there's stakeholders in this. You know, it's nation states working it, states are working on it, municipalities are working on it, industries and companies and nonprofits, but individuals need to work and collectively come together to become climate activists, to get the legislation passed and to get legislators um, elected that believe in this and want to do something about it because we don't have a lot of time <laughs> and I don't want to scare anybody, but we, we probably have less than 20 years before we jump off uh, a tipping point that we can't change and reverse ourselves as humans. We're just going to have to wait for the earth to adjust itself over thousands of years. Mm -hmm. So let's say if Greta Gutenberg, uh, the climate activist, was here. So if she was here and she was saying, hey, Kate, uh, we need to discuss these few issues. You think that what would be uh, those issues that you two would agree on on climate um, climate change? I think we both we both agree on the same thing. So she stopped speaking because she saw that nobody was doing anything around the climate crisis. And she was scared. She was like, why doesn't, I mean, it's emotional. Why is nobody caring as much as I care about this? She's like, the earth is on fire. It's burning. And we're like frogs. We're just sitting there, not jumping out of this, this heated environment, this soup and doing and trying to save our lives. Um, so she she was able to be very forceful about it and she didn't care what people thought about her and she didn't have any vested interest right she didn't she wasn't the leader of a corporation um she wasn't you know she wasn't a politician that had to get elected in two to three years she just was telling the truth and she was catalyzing people to feel like her and to be okay with um saying no the system doesn't work there is no planet B. Um, so, I mean, we would talk about the same things. I, I want to be very clear. It is everyone should be vested in this, right? So the, that's the other thing that she has brought to the table, that we cannot wait for somebody else to solve this problem. In the first, you know, 50 years ago, up to maybe 30 years ago, we're like, well, the scientists will solve it for us. And then the governments will solve it for us. And then the industries will solve it for us. But the reality is we all have to solve it. We all have to get together and, and do our collective best. You have tips in the book. You talk about flushing, you talk about clothes, you talk about food waste. So tell me about, this really got my interest about taking shower and flushing. Tell me about why we need to flush less. Well, for, <laughs> First of all, we have a huge water crisis uh -huh. across the mm -hmm. globe. Mm -hmm. we, are, we have been phenomenally lucky here in North America of the, just the amount of water, you know, snow melts, snowpack um, coming down from the mountains. We have great, huge water aquifers underneath. And so we've just been really blessed, um, but that is going away. We are now constantly, I think 80% of the United States or North America has been in drought for the last three years. This is not going to go away. Africa has no water. The Middle East 
has is runs out of water, right? South Africa came like within weeks of running out of water in their reservoir. This is happening all across the globe. We literally have not taken care of our potable, our potable water, our drinkable water. And what's going to happen is that we have to fall back on gray water reuse and desalinating um, salty or brackish water for us to drink because we just, we are there, we're in a water crisis and I'm not sure everyone realizes that. So when I talk about, you know, taking shorter showers, it's really important, even though it's cheap, water is cheap here in the United States, unfortunately, what is cheap um, and is what we don't value. Right? When we put a high price on things, we value it more. But unfortunately, it's it's inexpensive. So taking shorter showers, maybe not even taking a shower every day. Oh, I know that's blasphemous. But I mean, Europeans do it plenty. You know, that's, that's why they have perfume. And that's why we carry around handkerchiefs, right? You don't have to. It's not necessarily good for you to wash yourself with soap and water every day. Um that's not true of sanitation, right? So during the pandemic, we have to make sure we wash our hands a lot, but we also have um, the ability to do it with, you know, chemicals, but, you know, flushing toilets, that's a lot. I mean, each person flushes a toilet maybe 12 or 15 times a day, times how many people you live with. That's just, it just, it just, it just, so much water going down the drain. And here again, in the United States, it just commingles with sewage. So it's, it, it's water lost. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe wash, you know, especially if it's number one versus number two, maybe not flushing, putting the top down and waiting for somebody to come maybe the third time and flush down. It all makes a difference. Yes, yes, absolutely. After reading the book, I do not feel too um, intimidated of not flushing <laughs> uh, after after urination, and then I do it uh, afterwards or uh, on the second or third time. But you say that this is not a sacrifice. This is a way of life. Why would you think, especially in the United States, that we are sacrificing something? I mean, I just don't understand why, uh, because it's a, such an eminent issue. So why do we think that it's even a sacrifice? Again, I think it goes back to the advertising industry and consumption. You, you're always trying to, you know, we're told that you're always trying to better yourself. You have to better yourself. You have to buy more and look better. And, and you have to buy more often because that trend last year is not a trend this year. So get rid of all of those clothes and get new clothes. The makeup, um, that's, those are old colors. You need to get the new colors, right? So it's this, you know, so when people think, oh, I'm going to use my makeup for 10 years, or I'm going to wear the same clothes for a decade or more, I'm not going to replace things on a frequent basis. They feel like it's a sacrifice. Uh, when I see it as potentially an opportunity and hey, listen, if you if you hold your clothes for you know 20 or 30 years, you're going to be back in style for sure. I mean, I have a 12 year old um, daughter. She's wearing all my clothes that I kept for 30 years. So and she's totally in style. I think that but to be to be serious, um, again, it's this this social cultural construct that we have bought into that you just use and throw out 
and get new. And that is the good life where um, you can flourish um, having a sustainable lifestyle. It's just a, a, a shift in mindset. After reading the book, I feel less guilty of being frugal <laughs> because back in Tehran, we had to like, we mend our um, socks. I mean, we were a well-off family, but still something that everyone practiced or we tried so hard not to waste. So I'm, I'm very, it's back in the fashion. That's very interesting. Okay, uh, Kate. So if you were to be get invited to the um, um, UN climate change, and you had a chance to talk with the government bodies and delegates, what would be your message to them? Uh, there's a couple. One would, I would say, stop subsidizing the oil and gas industries. Just stop. I, I, I know that national governments consider energy autonomy uh, to be a national security issue. But we here in the United States have subsidized the oil and gas industry for over 150 years. First of all, they've been outrageously profitable. They don't need that subsidy. We need to transition those subsidies to renewable energy systems. So that would, I would say that, that should be a binding uh, agreement among the 200 countries that are gonna be in Glasgow COP. 20, um, 26. Uh, I would say stop building fossil fuel plants, right? Coal plants. Um, and um, stop a reliance on fossil fuel use, right? Even though China has a 2060 climate or carbon neutral goal, I mean, recently it's been, they, 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 they lack enough energy. So they're being, they've been falling back on coal plants. Right. So it's just that we just need to say, no, we're just not going to touch it anymore. Just kind of being mm -hmm. a vegetarian. No, I'm not going to touch animal protein anymore. Um, and it's not going to happen. But I would say, you know, the Kyoto Protocol had a legal binding. It was a legal binding agreement. Um, COP25 and COP26, it's all voluntary. But if we can somehow make that illegally binding, these targets that nations are setting, that would go a long way to ensuring that they are met. Mm -hmm. Excellent. And is my personal question, what is accessory dwelling units, ADU, ADU? ADUs. Uh, so there are additional small or compact homes on someone's property. So if you own an acre, a half acre, or a quarter acre, um, you already own that property. You can put a small unit, 600 square feet, um, 100 square, you know, not 100 square, 1,000 square feet, small unit. Um, and it can't, so you're basically using the, the property better to serve more people. Households in developed countries are getting smaller, but homes are getting bigger. It also um, allows for more affordable housing development, especially in urban areas, because mm -hmm. there's, there's such a crunch in affordable housing. If you put an ADU unit on your property, you can have sort of an, uh, an additional revenue stream, but also house somebody that needs it. 
Mm -hmm. Excellent. Uh, very good. Please stay put with me. You are watching Peace Mindedly and you are also listening to Peace Mindedly, a podcast featuring peaceful bridge makers. We talked to Kate Gardner, an expert and consultant in corporate sustainability. She is the writer of Planting a Seed, uh, Three Simple Steps to Sustainable Living. There is a wealth of information in the book to, um, if, if, if you consider your yourself someone who is who loves their kids and want to leave behind something better than just just preserve the planet maybe the, uh, this this is the book not maybe this is the book that you should read and um, you know that we are in our uh, season four production we have had many authors talking with us and also filmmakers so you can go to goldtune.com to learn about our guests and speakers you know the deal at the end of every program every show we ask our guests to share something meaningful about about peace about kindness and compassion and i would like to see what kate has for us so one of my north stars is the the dalai lama his holiness the dalai lama i i believe in personal responsibility i believe not in you know um us versus them but we i believe in um you know, finding your satsang or your um, group of like-minded individuals. But I just, you know, I would say that um, we all are um, agents of change. Um, we've created these systems, uh, individuals, and we can change these systems. And you have to believe that you're a stakeholder. You have to feel empowered. There's no one right path. Um, but I would say I, I want to read one maybe quote that I have in the book um, that is um, His Holy Lama, His Holiness the Dalai Lama from his book, The Path to Tranquility. Um, no one can afford to assume that someone else will solve their problems. Every individual has a responsibility. Good wishes are not sufficient. We must become actively engaged. And I do think that the climate crisis needs to catalyze us to become actively engaged. Very good, very well put. Thank you so much, Kate. Thanks for being here with us in our show. And uh, we do suggest and recommend reading, planting a seed. Thank you for the help. Thank you so much.